in general, and certainly decision-making in the Christian life, requires leaning into your weakness and God's providence. So the Christian life in general, and certainly your decision-making within the Christian life, requires that you lean into your weakness and God's providence. I think we're going to be helped in looking at that this morning from our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you're uh, new with us, we're, we've just started a, a new series a couple weeks ago on the book of 2 Corinthians. We just take each passage as it comes and we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 this morning. There's two arenas in which I want you to consider that statement that the Christian life and certainly decision making in the Christian life requires that we lean into our weakness and God's providence. Two arenas are these, where you go and how you go. Where you go and how you go. Look at the text. I'll read it. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though an open door was opened, uh, or even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God <clears throat> among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God... We speak in Christ. Point number one, lean into your weakness in God's providence where you go. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 is fascinating, isn't it? I, I don't know if you caught what Paul just said there, but Paul says, God opened a door for me. Now that's something we pray for often, don't we? When we're making decisions on what to do or where to go or what job to take or whether to go on this or that trip, it's one of the most common pastoral prayer requests that we get is for discernment and guidance and direction for God to help you figure out what to do with your job or your family or relationships. That's something we pray for all the time. Paul prayed for it and God gave it to him. Right? God is giving him an open door. God gave him an open door. You see it right there in verse 12 of your text. We often pray, God, please open doors for us. And he got one. It was an open door. If you look in your text, it's an open door in Troas, in the Lord, in which he had the intention to preach the gospel. It's not just an open door, it's an open gospel door. It's an open gospel door given by the Lord Christ Jesus. So Paul has this beautiful open door in the city of Troas, a gospel opportunity in Christ to share the gospel. But note those two little words in verse 12. Even though... You see that? Paul says, even though God opened a good gospel door for me in Troas, I went and did something else. Isn't that fascinating? What could be so important that it would lead Paul to take a different path that led away from this clear gospel opportunity in Troas? Like, is this the Bible? Did I just read that? God, God gave him an open gospel door, and he says, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. Well, in the first sermon of this series in 2 Corinthians, uh, Garrett preached a, a great sermon, and uh, at the beginning of, of that sermon, he talked about all of the Corinthian correspondences that we have. That wasn't just good Bible trivia to impress your friends. If anybody would be impressed by how much you know about the Corinthian correspondences, but that's so that you would understand passages like this. So in our Bible, we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians, two letters that Paul, the apostle, wrote to the church in Corinth. But we know from the context of those letters that he actually wrote other letters as well. 
He wrote at least two other letters to the church at Corinth outside of what we have in our Bible. And one of those letters that he wrote, he wrote right before what we're reading here in 2 Corinthians. He refers to it earlier in uh, this letter, earlier in 2 Corinthians, at the beginning of chapter 2, he refers to it. And this letter that he wrote to the Corinthians is often referred to as the severe letter. Paul wrote a severe letter to them. And he had just sent this off right before 2 Corinthians that we're studying right now. And he wrote it because the Corinthians were struggling with some stuff. The Corinthians were saying some things and believing some things and on a trajectory that Paul felt was really dangerous. And so he writes them a, a very pointed, severe letter. He was apparently really direct. Again, we don't have it, we don't know, but he was really direct. He came at them pretty strong. And then the worst thing happened for Paul. Nothing. Radio silence. My wife knows this all too well, my poor wife. Uh, she is what we call a verbal processor. I am what you call a block of granite. <laughs> so I was going to say a nonverbal processor. I don't think that quite takes it far enough. And so she's often processing things with me and conversation and and i think kim you can correct me if i'm wrong on this but i think my posture is this mm. Mm. and on more than one occasion she would be like would you just say something you all know this if you've sent an email off to somebody and you're unsure how they're going to respond to the email that you just sent so you wait an hour and you go back and you check refresh your browser maybe something's wrong or if you've sent a text to somebody and those little dots appear and you send something, you're like, ah, I don't know how that's going to land. And you see the little dots and you're like, oh my goodness, they're about to type something back. And then the dots disappear. You're like, ah, what? Like, they're so mad at me now they can't even type anything. And they're just going to, they broke their phone, I think. They're so this, this is what happened to Paul in Troas. Paul writes a severe letter to the Corinthian church and then nothing. Nothing happens. It's that radio silence. There's a tension that's building for him. It wasn't just that he missed Titus. So you might read that and be like, oh, Paul really liked Titus and Titus wasn't there, so he wanted to go find him. That's not what's going on here in the text. It's not just that, though he did have a great amount of affection for Titus. It was that Titus was supposed to bring him a report of how they received that letter. Titus was supposed to come back and say, hey, I gave him that letter. This is what they said. This is how they're responding. This is how they're obeying the Lord. This is how they're not obeying the Lord. This is how they are doing in Christ in response to this biblical instruction that you gave to them. And so Paul was there in Troas, and it's just eating him up. He's like, how'd they receive my letter? Did they repent? Did they bow up against biblical instruction? Are they okay? What is happening? We know this. I'll show you how we know this. It's probably helpful. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's one page to the right for me for uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, just so you can see. That's why it's important to read books in one big sitting. If you're going to read through a book of the Bible, if, if you can, just sit down and read the whole thing through, and you'll start to see threads that come together that you might not see, and just kind of paragraph by paragraph. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 2 through 4. So Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you, I have great pride in you, I am filled with comfort and all of our afflictions, I am overflowed with joy. So Paul here is wanting them to, to not forget his love and his affection for them. That's a big theme in the book of 2 Corinthians they were calling into question his apostolic authority and his, how, it, whether he cared for them and loved them or not. So he's, he's establishing that and, uh, throughout the letter. And so he's reminding them of that. But look at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, I, uh, into Macedonia our bodies had no rest. You see that? that that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's our text this morning. I went to Troas. I was restless, and so I went on to Macedonia. He talks about a bunch of other stuff that we'll get to in the coming weeks, and then he picks it back up right here. In 2 Corinthians 7, so he says, For when, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 
So Macedonia, restlessness reference there. So, so we remember in our, our text uh, in, in uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that he had this open door in Troas, but he went to Macedonia because of this restlessness. And then in chapter 7, we see that his restlessness continued. Now look at verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. There he is. He finally found Titus. What did he need from Titus? And not only, verse 7, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. You see what's happening here? Paul was hoping to go to Troas and just enjoy this good, open gospel door that Jesus had given him. Gospel ministry. That's what I'm going to do. But when he gets to Troas, he was hoping he was going to find Titus there who would update him on all this stuff that he's talking about. How Did they repent? Did they not? And so even though he had this good gospel opportunity, this open door in Christ, something else was hanging over his head. How were the Corinthians doing? We assume that if he would have found Titus in Troas, all would have been well. He would have heard how they were grieved, but the grief led them to repent, and he would have continued in his gospel ministry, but he couldn't. You can go back to chapter 2, verses 12 to 13 now. See if this fills in the gaps. Verses 12, verses 12 and 13 again. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Again, good gospel opportunity on one hand. On the other hand, a great restlessness because of the Corinthians. He needed to know if they were okay. He needed to know whether they were going to be obedient or not. So he walked away from an open gospel door. But look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ, so in the middle of this indecision, do I go here, do I go there, what, do I, like, what, what should I do? I have these great options before me. But thanks be to God who always leads us, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We'll get more into the triumphal procession in our next point. But you see what Paul is saying here. I had an open door in Troas. His restlessness led him to Macedonia. Regardless, God always leads us in Christ. That's his confidence. Church, there's a, there's a number of things that I think we can draw from this portion of our text. Let me highlight three. First, we are a people who care about other people. We are a people who care about other people. And that's, again, that's part of Paul's argument in this letter where he's reminding the Corinthians of his affection. He walked away from a gospel opportunity because he cared so much for them. If they're not okay, he's not okay. Friends, the Christian life is lived in such community that that must be the case. Again, not saying that we don't all have our individual relationships with the Lord, but it would be entirely inappropriate if I were in a season where, by God's grace, man, I'm walking with God, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, feel like I'm fighting sin well, and, and then somebody in my family, my wife, one of my kids are just, man, they're just struggling, they're depressed, their kids getting bullied at school, they're just, I mean, just, just things are unraveling, and you come up to me and be like, Jason, how are things going? I'm like, great, everything's awesome, reading the Bible, having my quiet times. Fighting sin, everything's great. And you see my family in a heap over here, like something would be wrong with that. And that's where Paul is in this. And, and that's how we live in community, that we are necessarily tied to one another. In another letter, Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He's writing to a church, and you're like, well, Paul, what do you mean your joy's not complete? You got Jesus. And he's like, no, yeah, I do, and there's, there's good joy there. But there's a sense in which I have joy there, but man, if this church is torn up and you guys are divided and you don't have unity, that my joy isn't complete. Friends, this is life in the church. We are people who care about other people. And this is what I mean in part at the beginning by talking about leaning into your weakness. There's going to be more about this in point number two, but, but I don't mean as we often do that, that strength is good and weakness is bad. 
I, I don't think that's true. No, I'm talking about a good, glorious, God-given weakness in which our care and concern for others limits us. Right? We know that we're not meant to live in this individualistic, isolated uh, kind of life where, where we are people who can conquer the world in our own strength. There's plenty of us in D.C. There's plenty of us in this area. There's plenty of us who are just, just going all the time, full bore, in our own strength, We've got to lean into our weakness. We're necessarily limited in a good way in our weakness because of the community that we are in. We must care for other people, not only for ourselves. We are linked in, in a community and in a family with each other that, that shapes us and, and at times may redirect us. A spirit-led, biblically informed, conscience-given thing. It's a gift from God. A second thing I think we can draw out of these first couple verses here is that not every opportunity is an obligation. Not every opportunity is an obligation. There are reasons to not take, there are good reasons to not take a good opportunity. Right, there are various ways that God leads us and not every opportunity is an obligation. <clears throat> you know, we studied, uh, not too long ago, we studied the book of Acts before we did our summer series and the, the Psalms. We were in the book of Acts last year and we pointed this out <clears throat> in those sermons, but it's amazing, especially in the book of Acts, early in the book of Acts, and, you know, you've got Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falling on people and just these crazy, miraculous things going on. And so we, we think that God was always leading his people by, by visions and, and, and by, uh, you know, the, this huge, miraculous kind of thing showing up and telling everybody what to do and where to go. And we do see that at one point, really, when Paul is trying to go somewhere and, and the Holy Spirit stops him and he sees this vision of this man in Macedonia calling him to go over there, and, and he does that and he follows that. One of the things we pointed out in the Acts series is how many times, uh, do this, t read the book of Acts, look for how many times they say, it seemed good to us. Or, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to do this thing. There, there, there's a sense in which if we're walking in Christ, if we're obeying the Lord and we're, we are walking in the will of God, that, that he is giving us the ability to make decisions. <laughs> and to do things with the mind that he has given us. And with the biblical information that he has infused into our hearts and in our minds. Not every opportunity is an obligation. Maybe you have an opportunity before you right now, an open door. But, but you have a restlessness for a reason. As good as that thing is, to not pursue it. Now, when you hear that, don't, 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 don't think exactly of, of you know, whether I'm going or staying or moving laterally in my company or taking a promotion or not, or it, it's, it, it could be that your opportunity, it's, it's out there, right? There's, there's, a, there's an opportunity to go to a new place or to, to take a new thing, but there's a restlessness that makes you think, I, I don't think I'm free to go do that. Or that good opportunity could be exactly what you're doing right now. You could have the, the, it could be where you are doing what you're doing, and you're like, that's a good gospel opportunity, but there's a restlessness that's actually going to lead me to go do the other thing or go to the other place. All right, so it, it, it could happen either way in our lives. But if you are considering something, whatever it is, wherever it is, your spirit doesn't feel at rest for a reason. It could be that that... that that thing would just be spiritually unhelpful for you or for your family. It could be that place you're going doesn't have a good church. It could be that new position is going to have a work-life balance that is going to uh, harm your own personal well-being, physical well-being, emotional well-being, family life. could damage your experience of community and fellowship with others. It could be that there are relationships that are left unresolved in situations that need to be tended to. I don't know what it is, and obviously you guys know we can't kind of take this brush and paint every single instance of how this might play out in each one of our lives in this church. But I do want us to see that not every opportunity is an obligation. Even this gospel opportunity to preach the gospel in Christ, that's a good thing. And he doesn't do it for good reason. One other caveat, this is different than doing hard things. I, I don't mean, hey, there's this thing out there that would be really hard, and so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Read Paul's life. 
right? He's like, I know I'm going to go in the city and they're going to beat me down again. Here we go. Right? So I'm not talking about doing hard things. Right? There's a difference there. Sometimes the Lord does lead us to do hard things. But there's something about this restlessness for him here that he just can't shake. Can't get out from underneath of it. And he realizes that not every opportunity is an obligation. Again, I don't intend to solve all your decision-making problems this morning. There, there are certainly principles of, of reading scripture, of praying, of getting wise counsel, right? The literature abounds on this because there's no blanket answer. I just want us to see in Paul that sometimes we have multiple fine options. And sometimes you must walk away from a good opportunity. Again, there's no pat answer for that in part because of our next application here. Third, gospel wherever you go. Right, so kind of three things we're taking away from this. Right? We, we, we are people, we can take many things, but we are, we are people who care about other people. Not every opportunity is an obligation. And number three, gospel wherever you go. There's no pat answer here in the text because I think the bigger point is not trying to solve each and every little decision that we're going to make or big decision that we're going to make, but the bigger point that must be made is that we are to gospel wherever we go. That's why Paul burst out into this exclamation, burst out into this uh, statement of praise that even though he had these two things and he went this way instead of staying there in Troas, he says, but regardless, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We walk in, in weakness, and God leads according to his good providence. Man, we know that in this church. Military PCS, living in a transient city, political party changeover, changes in positions, companies getting bought out, changing bosses, changing schools, changing companies. Friends, doesn't, in the midst of all of that, gospel wherever you go so that you can say wherever god leads me and whatever he has for us in this season thanks be to god who in christ always leads us in triumphal procession that's the bigger thing it's not your processes by which you make decisions that's another conversation for another day it's your posture and your perspective that says that right there praise be to god because wherever i go and whatever he has me doing I, i'm going with the aroma of christ which we'll see in a second he always leads us in Christ in triumphal procession. Wherever you go, go with the gospel. Spread Christ in each place. All right, our next point, point number two. So, so lean into your weakness in God's providence wherever you go. And then secondly, how you go. So where you go and how you go. Look again at verse 14. This is what I just read. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, as you look at this text, there's a very specific image that Paul has in his mind. If you ever studied 2 Corinthians deeply or heard a sermon series on this, you, you've maybe heard a, a preacher or an author kind of talk about this, but there's, a, there's an image that Paul has that his original hearers who would have read this letter would have immediately understood and knew what he was talking about. It's foreign to us, so we need to get into it and explain it a little bit. It's not a readily apparent image for us, but there's a, a formal kind of thing uh, that happened, uh, a Roman custom that was called the triumphal procession. Right, the triumphal procession was the term for when a Roman general, the Roman army would go out and a general would conquer a, another uh, place, conquer another city, another territory, and then he would come back victoriously and there would be this elaborate parade that would go through Rome and that would end up at the Temple of Jupiter. All right, so this was called the, the, the triumphal procession. And so it began with members of the magistrate and the senate leading the way as they marched into the city. And then after them would be these guys blowing trumpets, alerting everybody that this parade is happening and the triumphal procession is taking place. And then after the trumpeters, there were people who were carrying objects of their conquest. So they'd be carrying gold or, or uh, any, any kind of stuff that they had taken, statues, riches, even pieces of ships <laughs> that they had ripped off of some boat they destroyed, they'd be carrying that thing through the city. And so there's like college football with a goalpost, you know, kind of walking it around. Like that, that's what's going on. They'd march that through the city. 
after those objects would be guys playing flutes. You'd have the fluters who would come through, followed by oxen. There'd be a bunch of oxen because they're going to march that all the way to the temple of, uh, of Jupiter and then sacrifice the, the uh, oxen, oxen as a, a thanksgiving uh, sacrifice to their gods. Then after the oxen would be the captives, the, the prisoners that they took, especially if it was a king or a general that they took alive. He would be in chains any of their kind of prisoners of war, and they would, they would follow next. Sometimes they would likewise be executed once they would reach the temple. They're being marched through as well, followed by the Roman general himself in a fancy, ornate chariot holding a scepter. He would have a servant holding a crown over his head. And then behind him, all the soldiers who are all crying out in unison, Hail, triumphant one! He was known as the triumphator. Hail, triumphant one. This was the Roman triumphal procession. So as Paul is thinking about his ministry, how he had an open door in Troas but was restlessly rerouted to Macedonia, he has this image in his mind of the Christian life and of Christian ministry. He's And as he's re- reflecting on it, he doesn't simply assert that this is how God led him. What's he say in the text? God leads us. God leads us this way. There is something in the image of the triumphal procession that is true of the Christian life. What is it? Again, let's highlight three things. You have a position. You have a smell. (laughs) Yes, you have a smell. You have a position. You have a smell. And you have a task. You have a position, you have a smell, you have a task. First, you have a position. So as you, even as you get the image of this triumphal procession, the, the question becomes, well, which, who's Paul? Is he blowing the trumpet? Is he blowing the flute? Is he the oxen? Is he the general? Right, who's Paul? Well, the key for us comes actually in the Greek language, the Greek word itself that is used here. And, and, and the, the kind of syntax and, and things behind this. But the Greek word that stands behind the phrase of leads in triumphal procession is most often a word that means to triumph over. And in the context of the Roman triumph would mean to lead someone as a captive in a triumphal procession. So Paul here envisions himself as the slave in the parade. He envisions himself as the the prisoner in the parade in the Roman triumphal procession. He envisions the Christian in the Christian life as the the slave, the servant, the the one who's been taken captive, not the conqueror, but the conquered, the one who has been conquered by Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, (laughs) let me just say what you're thinking. What an odd thing for Christians to think. What an odd thing to think. Just know that Christianity doesn't speak of us or of God the way that other systems of thought and the way that other religions do. It completely flips everything on its head. Not that we are the conquerors, but that we are the conquered. Not that we save ourselves, but that we are saved. Not that we are the heroes of the story, but that we are the rebels who God must save. So Paul sees himself this way. He writes in another letter, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 10, He says, for if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So that's how the Bible paints us, enemies of God. I know you've been told that the picture of the Christian life and salvation is is kind of this pool of humanity, and we're all kind kind of in it, and we're crying out for the lifeguard to throw us the life raft so that we can be saved. And then Jesus throws it and it maybe lands over there and I've got to, you know, kind of get my way over to it and get the life raft so that Jesus can life save me and pull me out. That's not the picture. The picture that the Bible paints, I'll, I'll give you two possible ideas that you can go with here. One is, is that we're, we're, we're completely dead, right? Paul says that we are dead in Ephesians. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So the right picture is not that the life preserver lands but the, and that we kind of work half the way over and get it, but that Jesus has to come in put it on us, pull us out, do life to life, and bring us back to life. That's the picture of salvation. Or, alternate image, that's where all the analogies break down, is that Jesus, the lifeguard, is standing there, and I'm smacking the thing out of his hand. 
He says, you're drowning. I said, no, I'm not. Glove, glove, glove. <laughs> right? You, you need saving. No, get that thing out of my face. I don't want that. You jump in here and try to fight me, I, I'm going to fight you. You try to save me. Right? That, that's the picture of us, that we are, we are enemies of the cross of Christ. We are enemies of God outside of Christ. We're enemies of God. None of us righteous, no, not one. And to the Philippians, Paul writes, Philippians 3.18, he, he talks about people, he, he says, I tell you through tears, Philippians 3.18, there's people of whom I have told you now and often tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So apart from Christ, we're, we're, friends, we're not just indifferent. So outside of, of, of being saved by Jesus and being a Christian, we're not just indifferent. We're not just religiously uncommitted. You believe that, some believe this, some other people believe this. I'm just religiously uncommitted. That's not the situation. The Bible says that we are enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies of God. We all need to hear that. And that's not like us versus you. That's every single person in this room was in that position. I was in that position. We are all enemies of God apart from Jesus. We're either for him or we're against him. Either surrendered to him or in conflict with him. Either loyal subjects or utter rebels. There's two options. As painted by scripture. And then Romans 6, I tell you Romans 5, Paul calls us enemies of God. Romans 6, Paul goes on to talk about how we are slaves of Christ. We used to be slaves to sin, but in Christ now we're slaves of righteousness. We used to be enslaved to our own ways, but Jesus conquered us. We are enemies of him, slaves to sin, slaves to unrighteousness. But Jesus came in and he, and he destroyed all of that by his own death on the cross that we might, be, we might die with him and rise to new life. That's the good news of Christianity, that, that we can be saved by believing in him and we go from being enemies of him to friends with him. Doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. It means that we, our, our rebellion has been broken, that we have been conquered. We are now servants of Christ, glad, happy servants of Jesus, of King Jesus. We were once slaves of sin, but we've been set free from sin and become slaves of Christ. And friends, that is a good, glorious thing in the Christian life, to recognize our own weakness and his sovereignty, his providence, and delight in our servitude, delight in our, uh, the, the fact that we've been conquered by him. So Christians here this morning, remember that you have a place, you have a position. Don't forget the context that caused Paul to launch into this reflection, right? He had written an intense letter to the Corinthians. He wasn't sure what they thought of him or, uh, or of his letter or how they'd respond. And he was so torn up about it and wrestles about it that he leaves a fruitful place of ministry and goes somewhere else to find Titus and get an update. And he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. You may stay where you are. You may end up going something else. You may keep doing what you're doing now. You may go do something else. Things may go as you have planned. God may have other plans for your life. But thanks be to God that you're just a victim. You're just a, 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 a prisoner in his triumphal parade. He has conquered you with a glorious conquering that you can be a servant of him. Why is this helpful for us? Friends, you don't have to worry about leading the charge or winning the day, as it were. You just need to follow the king and trust him. To a church in Corinth that had a lust for powerful orators, these so-called super apostles, these men of self-assigned authority, Paul says, nah, I'm not playing that game with you. I'm just, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant. I've been conquered by Jesus. And he does that not to nullify his authority, but to legitimize it. To this church that was calling into question his authority in light of these super apostles and these really powerful people and these big speakers, Paul says, <laughs> yeah, you can have that if you want. I'm a servant of King Jesus. Not to nullify his authority, but to establish it. These guys can run with that all day long if they want. Talking about how big and bad they are. My claim to fame is going to be Jesus. I'm going to preach him and him only. He's going to be my strength. May that be true of us. This is good news. We can likewise exclaim, thanks be to God. 
You don't need to be in charge of everything. You don't need to have everything figured out. You don't need to neurotically wonder whether you've screwed it all up with every little decision that you've made or whether you've ripped sovereignty out of the hands of Almighty God because you chose that major instead of that one. Or because you took this job instead of that job. Or because you moved to this city rather than that one. Friends, we can be truly thankful that our position is not to win the day, to not to win the battle, to not to be the conquerors, but to be the conquered and to be servants of the king. That is an incredibly freeing thought to have and a perspective to hold on to, and that's what Paul believes. So remember that you have a position. Secondly, remember that you have a smell. You have a smell. Look again at verse 14. So thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And here, and through us spreads the fragrance. There's a fragrance. It spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's another thing that God is doing through his people, these prisoners of the Lord, these servants of the king, is spreading a, a fragrance. Again, so the Roman triumphal procession, it, it was, I, I kind of walked you through kind of the order of who was walking where, but it was also a very fragrant event. It was a very sweet-smelling event. The, the, along the parade route, there would be incense burning. There would be people throwing garlands of flour. There were people assigned to sprinkle perfume all over the streets. And then, of course, once they got to the temple, there would be sacrifices, sweet-smelling aroma coming out of the temple as well. And so this whole thing, this Roman triumphal procession, as you step back and looked, or as if, if you were there, it was a, you would remember with your nose. You would remember the, the fragrance and the aroma that was going forth out of this. And so Paul kind of trades on that language and that imagery there as he talks about us, being, thanks be to God, that, that, that he leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So wherever we go and whatever opportunities the Lord has for us, we are spreading an aroma. And the aroma, note in the text, is the knowledge of him. That's the fragrance. It's the knowledge of him. That's it. That's our smell. It's the knowledge of Jesus. Now, we don't want to press that metaphor too far to think that, well, okay, we just walk around in the Christian life and there's going to be something emanating from us somehow that's going to spread the knowledge of Jesus. No, 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 we, the, we don't press the image too far. There's other texts that we know that we, what our job is as Christians is to spread the knowledge of Jesus, and people don't get the knowledge of Jesus by osmosis. People don't literally get the knowledge of, Je uh, the knowledge of Jesus through their noses. Right? The knowledge of Jesus must be spread through the verbal proclamation of the Word of God. It must be spread through the verbal proclamation of the gospel of Christ, the intentional uh, uh, exposition and explaining of the fact that we are sinners, rebels, enemies of God, but God made us alive together in Christ Jesus. That Christ took our place, took our sin on him, bearing our punishment on himself as our representative, and then defeated death that we may have life. That's the message. That's what goes out. That's how we spread the knowledge of Christ. Our actions, our way of life, our aroma, if you will, can certainly support and platform that spreading of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it won't be sufficient. No, the way that we spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ is by testifying to the glories of our King, by communicating the wonder of what He's done for us in the death and resurrection of Christ, by explaining the joys of following Him and of trusting Him by faith, living for Him, knowing that He is good. That's how the knowledge of Him goes forth. Note there in the text as well that the aroma is to God. You see that in the text that we are the aroma, verse 15, of Christ to God among those who are being saved. It is a, as we share the knowledge of Christ, it is a sweet-smelling aroma to God himself. It is a good and pleasing thing that brings him joy as we speak joyfully of Christ and boldly proclaim his excellencies. It is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. But also note the nature of this fragrance in verses 15 to 16. There are two audiences. There are two groups of people who are in our vicinity to catch a whiff of this aroma of Christ. The, the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus. It's people who are being saved and people who are perishing. 
to those who are being saved there in the text, the fragrance of Jesus, it says, goes from life to life, meaning I, I think that there, there is a life that we find even here and now as we, the Bible pictures salvation for the Christian as, as a rebirth, as a regeneration, being born again. And so it goes from life here and now of being saved to life, eternal life with Jesus. So, so that, that's, that's some who are being saved. The fragrance of Jesus goes from life to life. And then for others who are perishing, the fragrance goes from death to death, I, I think meaning physical death in this life, and then eternal death to come. Death from beginning to end. Just as it's life from beginning to end, there's death from beginning to end. There's one of those two reactions to the fragrance. There's not two fragrances. It's one fragrance. Not two aromas. It's one aroma. Well, what is happening with that fragrance and that aroma is there's two different reactions to it. There's an evangelistic tool that you might be familiar with. It's called Two Ways to Live. Right, Paul here says there's two ways to smell. <laughs> there's two reactions to this, and there's only two. Right, there, there's the rebellion that we've talked about, and there's the surrender to Jesus. Those are the two reactions. Those are two ways to receive the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ, that message of Jesus, is either going to be one of life, that we smell it, we see his life, we hear about his love and the gospel. We see about his, his uh, concern for the downtrodden. We see his, his uh, light burden and load that he doesn't want to heap religious works onto us and make us try and just be good and do harder. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to free us. He wants to lighten our burden. He wants to lighten our load. He wants to give us waters that will never run dry. He wants to give us food that we will, we will never lack again. He wants to give us what is good. And we see that and we say, that is sweet. That is beautiful. I want more of that. Or we see who he is in the gospel. And we say, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm not that bad off. I don't need saving. I don't need the crutch. Thank you. I got it on my own. Friends, if that's you, let me plead. That way lies death. Death to death. It is the aroma. You smell the aroma, and you have a reaction to it. It's similar. I mean, if you could just picture a, 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 a literally a good-smelling perfume or cologne, maybe that takes you back to your best friend or to a time where that, that smell was sweet to you in your youth, and you, 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 they kind of relaunched that new fragrance, and you smell it, and it takes you back, and it's nostalgic, and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember that. Or maybe somebody wore that scent who was abusive, who was unkind to you, and you smell that scent, it hits you in a different way. And you're like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. Right, there's a way that an aroma can take you in one of two directions. Or you might go to a steakhouse and smell the aroma of the steak, and that is a pleasant, sweet-smelling thing to you. Or maybe you ate there last week and got food poisoning, and you smell it, and you're like, I don't want anything to do with that. Right? There's one fragrance, two reactions to it. The difference with Jesus, <laughs> there is no food poisoning. There is no abuse. There's been nothing but kindness, nothing but good health, nothing but love and compassion and tenderness from him. And we get a whiff of that, and we have two ways to live in rebellion or in surrender. For us, well, what do we do with that? Well, I, we, we share Jesus. We share the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Our job as Christians is not to control how that's going to be smelled by everybody. It's not going to control what the response that everybody's going to do with that. Some of you have people in your life right now you've been sharing that with, and they're kicking it away, and re, re, your job is to keep sharing the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus. Leave the results with him. Trust him. Number three, you have a task. You have a task. You have, you have a position in this Roman parade, this triumphal procession. You have a smell and you have a task. This whole deal about being the aroma of Christ, life to life for some and death to death for others, makes Paul ponder at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? The answer is nobody. 
who, gosh, who can operate within this and the, 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 where there's going to be death for some and life for others? I, 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 are any of us sufficient for this? No, we're not. On one hand, right, what, what an amazing trust that God has given us. The Christian ministry is above our pay grade. We're all inadequate for it. And yet, in another sense, there's an adequacy and a sufficiency that comes from knowing your role and your task and sticking to it. So that our sufficiency doesn't come from us and our abilities, but it comes from Jesus. Who is sufficient for this? None of y'all, not me, he is. So knowing our position, knowing our task, knowing our role, knowing what our job is. I'm sufficient for that. <laughs> if, if I'm just the servant, I can do the servant thing. I can, I can be the guy in chains. Okay, I can do that. I can't lead this thing. But nobody's asking you to. Jesus is leading. King Jesus. And we are following in this triumphal possession. None of us are sufficient for this. He is. And so he finishes in verse 17 by saying that we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of God... As men, uh, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Our task as ministers of the gospel, as Christians, all of us, certainly anybody who preaches, anybody who teaches the Bible, but all of us who represent Christ, our job is not to sell anybody on anything. Our job is not to close the deal. You don't have the ability for that. You don't have the power for that. That's not, that's not, that's not in your skill set. To take somebody who's dead and make them alive. You can't do it. I can't do it. Jesus can do it. And so he says, we're not like so many who are peddlers of God's word. Notice that he says so many. Like so many. Those people are out there. They're out there in Paul's day. They're out there in our day. Peddlers of God's word. The Greek word there means to, to, uh, to um, try to, to get gain. Uh, money, kind of money making merchants. People are out there, these merchants who are just trying to make money and that's all they're concerned about. He's like, that's not us. We're not out there just trying to make money with this thing. The people with whom the Corinthians were enamored were the smooth, the eloquent, the polished, claiming their own sufficiency and building their own ministries and their own power and influence. And they're doing it by telling everybody what they want to hear. That's what advertisers do. That's what people trying to sell a product do. That's what they do, right? I know what you want. Let me try to, 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 to package this thing so that, so that you'll see it and know that you want this thing. So I'll, I'll shape the, project, the, the product. <clears throat> We'll pull off an advertising campaign if we need to, based on whether or not you're going <coughs> excuse me, whether or not you're going to like this or not. They tell people what they want to hear. I don't know if you've ever <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I don't know if you've ever heard the late Tim Keller. heard him one time at a conference talk about a Stepford God. I heard Keller talk about this. He says that, <coughs> excuse me, he says that there's, <coughs> there's a position that we can take before God where we can have not want God, thank you brother, where we can not want God, but we can want a Stepford God. He's, there's a, a, a book, Stepford Wives, where this group of husbands, they don't want the wives they have, they want wives who are just going to do whatever they say. So they kill them and replace them with robots who just obey their every command, obey their every whim. The reason there's peddlers of God's word is because there's a lot of people that don't want God. They want a Stepford God. And so Keller goes on to say, he says, if, if you don't, don't be scared off from Christianity because you hear something that you don't like. <laughs> Don't be pushed away from Christianity because you read something in the Bible, you hear truth taught, and you just don't like it. If that's the case, you don't want God, you want a Stepford God. And how ridiculous is the thought that if there really was a God who really existed, he wouldn't disagree with me on anything. If there really was a God who really existed, he wouldn't challenge any of my assumptions. He would share all of my assumptions. If there was really a God who really existed, he wouldn't differ with me on any of these positions that I have. He would only affirm the positions that I have. That's not God. That's a puppet. That's a robot. And there are peddlers of God's word in Paul's day and in our, ours. 
But I'm saying, let me give you more of that. Let me give you a step for God so I get more money so that you buy this thing. Friends, that is not what we are doing. That is called false teaching that we run from. That's not us. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, listen, guys, I'm not, I'm not just trying to tell you what you want to hear. I can't. Look what he says in the text. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. There are plenty here in our church that know exactly what this means. We men and women who have served in our armed forces, commissioned, right? You don't get, just get to do whatever you want. You don't get to say whatever you want. You don't even get to dress the way you want or go where you want to go all the time. No, you've been given orders, and your job is to follow those orders. That's what Paul says here. That's us. That's us. He's changed the metaphor a little bit from the servants to, to now. We've been commissioned. We've been given a task. We've been given a message. We've been commissioned, and so that's what we do. We speak in Christ. We, we, we push out the knowledge of him, the fragrance of the knowledge of him, and we trust him to do what he's going to do. Christ has given us a task, all of us a task. Go and make disciples. Love me, love God, and love others. That's, that's your task. Love God to love others. Make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Paul says that's our task, and so we speak in Christ. The Christian life, certainly decision-making in the Christian life, requires you to lean into your weakness in God's providence, this position. I'm not in charge. And where I go and how I go, I don't know the answers for all of us. I don't know the answers to my own life. I can't solve all of yours. But I do know the posture, that we are servants of the king, that we have a task, we have a message. And wherever we go, we are to spread the aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for each other. Father in heaven, we do pray to you, thanking you and the Son and the Spirit as our one God. God, thank you for the responsibility, the stewardship, really, that you've given us in Christ to, to, to steward and, and to proclaim the knowledge of him. God, you've saved us not just as, as a, a ticket into heaven, as it were, but you've saved us to open our mouths. You've saved us to, to represent you and your kingdom well on this earth. Would you help us, even now as we turn to the table and we see the elements before us, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood, God, would we be freshly reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus and of our responsibility to be his servants and to spread the knowledge of him everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.